I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Cal Rostiala. Cal is professor of law and director of the Ronald W. Burkle Center for International Relations at UCLA. He has written for publications including the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Los Angeles Times, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And it doesn't say here that you've written for Socolow Public Square. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Cal Rostiala. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. I want to thank the Zocalo team. I know they are working very hard, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So I'm going to talk to you about knockoffs and the connection between copying and creativity. And what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about uh, a few different industries and kind of bring it uh, together at the end. But I want to start off talking about fashion, because as some of you may know, this is New York Fashion Week. So you may have been hearing about New York Fashion Week. Uh, it's a big deal in New York. Uh, fashion Weeks happen around the world, um, but New York is one of the most important. And I think, as most of you know, the, at New York Fashion Week, there are runway shows kind of all over town, and clothes come down those runways. Some of those clothes will never see the light of day. Um, others will end up in stores uh, in a matter of sometimes weeks, but usually months, and really a season or so away. But what will also happen is some of those clothes will end up knocked off, and you'll see them in stores like Forever 21, um, or I can name others, but Forever 21 is probably the, the biggest um, purveyor of knockoffs in the United States. You can also go to websites like um, Faviana. Now, Faviana specializes in um, what it calls bling on a budget. And what it does is show you uh, not so much runway fashions, but what stars wear. So if you watch the Oscars, like most of us, when we do watch it, you see there's all this sort of run up to the Oscars themselves, and it's all about who's wearing who on the red carpet. Faviana takes those dresses, and they're almost always dresses, and takes them and puts them up on their website, and then very quickly comes up with a knockoff version for a few hundred dollars versus the maybe thousands to tens of thousands that the original will cost. And they're very upfront about that. So both of these examples uh, are examples of things that are entirely legal. So there's nothing illegal about going and copying a dress. Uh, nothing stops Forever 21 from knocking off any outfit that someone might be wearing here or might dream up in the next five minutes. They're allowed to do that, uh, and they do it a lot. Now, what's interesting about that and important about that is it cuts against the grain of what we usually think about as the necessary uh, element of our intellectual property system. So let me back up. If you watch a video at home, you put in a DVD, we all have seen that FBI warning that pops up, right? And you can't fast forward through that FBI warning. They make you read it and they tell you all the things that will happen, the fines and the jail time, if you copy that DVD. Now, that's the usual way that we uh, address copying in the United States, and for that matter, in most countries. We treat copying as something that is bad and should be against the law, and in fact is against the law. And in most creative industries, it's illegal to copy. Why? Because we think that if you copy, whether it's a DVD, a book, a song, you are taking away the incentive for creators to create new things, because that copy will outcompete the original. Why? Because usually the copy is cheaper. So it's cheaper to make a copy than to make an original, so as a result, 
we make copies illegal, or at least we restrain them a lot. So we do this in almost all creative areas. Now, in the music business and the film business, this is a big deal.、Um, and some of you may work in those industries, and you know that this is something that,、uh, particularly in this town, people really focus on. They're very concerned about how、uh, the lack of respect for intellectual property rights here and abroad is undermining their business model. So, if you think about what I described in the fashion industry, it's the polar opposite. It's entirely legal. Uh, and there's nothing that's stopping these companies from knocking it off. So, what drew me to thinking about fashion and to writing this book was that puzzle. Why is it that the fashion industry is different? And it turns out it's not just the fashion industry, and I'll talk about some of the other ones that are similar. But why is it that the fashion industry is different? Why is it that you're allowed to copy things、uh, there that you wouldn't be able to copy in other industries? And most importantly, why is it that the fashion industry still exists and is still creative if all that copying is going on? Doesn't that、uh, suggest that there's something wrong with the way that we have thought about the relationship between copying and creativity in all these other fields? So, that in a nutshell、uh, is what this book is about. So,、um, so, let me talk a little bit about how fashion works and why I think fashion is different. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about food、uh, and some of the other areas that we address in the book,、um, and then try to draw out some, some bigger points about what this all means.、Um, so, first, I mentioned our copyright laws, and I think most of you are familiar at a basic level with that. I don't want to get into any detail, but I just want to emphasize what copyright does and doesn't do and how it relates to some other areas so that we can have a basis for talking about things like fashion. So, first of all, when we talk about knockoffs, we're not talking about labels. Counterfeiting. So, the label that might be in a shirt or a dress, let's say、uh, the label says、um, Ralph Lauren, that label、uh, is protected by trademark law. So, you can't copy that. So, if you go to Santee Alley downtown, you'll sometimes find examples, or Canal Street in New York, or elsewhere, certainly anywhere in Asia, you will find lots of examples of counterfeit goods. Those are illegal. So, everything I just talked about, when I talked about knockoffs and Faviana and so forth, they're not putting the label on those goods. They're saying, this is a Faviana dress, it just happens to be a knockoff、uh, of a dress by somebody else, Marc Jacobs, let's say.、But、they're not going to put Marc Jacobs' name in there because that's illegal. So, that's trademark. Trademark's about brands and about names, and I'll come back to that. Source, yeah, trademark tells you where it comes from. Copyright usually governs things that are Creative in nature and not functional art forms. So, we've already talked about some of them music, film, poetry, literature, etc. If something is functional, meaning that it has a use、uh, that we get some kind of、um, you know, function out of, then it's usually in the realm of patent. Patent covers things like machines, pharmaceuticals, anything that we use that has a real function rather than being an art form like a Painting on the wall that doesn't do anything for us other than provide us with pleasure. Obviously, there's a fine line that's drawn between these two areas, but that's sort of the breakdown. So, if we think about the fashion industry, fashion's usually addressed、uh, by trademark because brands are very, very important to the fashion industry and they really care about those brands. I've already told you that it's not addressed by copyright, so you're free to copy the design as much as you want.、Uh, is it addressed by patent? Well, sometimes. Patents are, there are things called design patents. So, some of you may have heard in the last week or two about the Apple versus Samsung dispute. In the Apple versus Samsung dispute, there are a bunch of different issues involved, including、um, uh, 
patents that deal with the way you work in iPhone. So I have one in my pocket. If you turn it on, um, so a lot of you are familiar with it, you know, there's an array of apps on there and how they work and so forth. Those are regular patents, but there's also a patent on the look of this phone, the shape of this phone, the fact that it has rounded corners and a button here in the middle. That has, Apple has a design patent in that, and it has a design patent in its iPad shape as well. And some of those patents were at stake in that dispute between Apple and Samsung. So the point is there are patents for designs, um, but those are not so useful in the fashion industry. Patents take a long time to get, they're relatively expensive, and fashion's relatively cheap, and usually doesn't last very long. Clothes come into style, they go out of style, and I'll come back to that point in a second. And so as a result, it's not useful to get a patent. So, trademark on the one hand, very significant. Copyright in the middle, could be but isn't used, doesn't apply at all to fashion. And then patent is something that could be used, but in practice is almost never used. So the result is that the, um, the design of a dress, of a jacket, of a shirt, of a pair of shoes, of a handbag, all of those things uh, are really free to copy, uh, except for the name. So, given that, why does the fashion industry stay, stay so creative? What is it about the fashion industry that makes it creative? I think there's a couple of things to draw out of, and those things have implications for other industries. They all revert back to the same basic idea, which is that fashion is a cyclical industry. Things go into fashion, they come out of fashion. Now, some of us don't really follow fashion, we don't really pay attention to it, our clothes are the same clothes, we wear our clothes out, but that's a small group of us. There's a middle group that maybe doesn't wear their clothes out, but sooner or later turns them over. <laughs> and then there are people who treat clothing as disposable and buy it. And again, this is where um, our hometown favorite Forever 21 comes into play. Um, their clothes are cheap, and so you can buy them, wear them a few times, and get rid of them, and a lot of people do that. So there's a range of ways to think about clothing, a range of ways that we relate to clothing. But the point is, fashion does come in and out of, out of uh, sorry, styles come in and out of fashion, that there is a cycle. And in that cycle is something important that we need to pay attention to. That cycle is going to happen no matter what, and it's happened for a long time. So Shakespeare famously wrote that the fashion wears out more clothing than the man, meaning the point that I just made. You don't wear out your clothes, you usually get rid of them for some other reason. So even Shakespeare knew that. And you can find older examples of quotes like that. But the ability to copy, the freedom to copy, actually makes that fashion cycle turn faster. Now, why is that? Because when a new design comes out, let's say something that's being shown on the runway tonight, right now in New York, turns out to be a big hit, and in six months, it'll be very, very desired. People will want to wear it, you'll see it in magazines, it'll be in Vogue, it'll be on television, it'll appear in different places. As that starts to happen, others will copy it. So whether it's Fabiana, or Forever 21, or H&M, or Zara, or other high-end designers, they will do their own version of it. They will tweak it, they will change it slightly, maybe, maybe they'll do an exact copy. There'll be a range of responses. But you'll start to see versions of it in the marketplace. And when we see a lot of things that look alike in the marketplace, we essentially see a trend, right? So that's what a trend is. A trend is a series of things that look alike. And trends are what drive fashion. So the ability to copy, the freedom to copy, enables trends to develop. And that, in turn, makes that fashion cycle turn faster. Because now it's everywhere. So let's fast forward nine months from now, 12 months from now. Suddenly, everybody has seen that dress or that particular shape boot or whatever it might be, 
And we're starting to say, wow, that is really everywhere. Now it's at TJ Maxx. Now it's at, and you keep going down the list. And maybe you start to get tired of it. Maybe you're saturated with it. And maybe if you're a kind of fashion forward person, you've already gotten rid of it. And so that cycle is moving more quickly and more quickly. And now you need a new thing, and the designers are there to provide you with a new thing to wear. So the fashion cycle is an eternal feature, but the freedom to copy is what makes it turn quickly. So in a sense, it induces another round of creativity by designers, forces them to give us something new. The other thing that the ability to copy does is it helps create that trend I talked about a moment ago. And that trend is really useful if you're someone who really wants to dress uh, in a way that is in style. You need to know what is in style. So people who uh, follow fashion, follow blogs, magazines, and television shows, in part to get cues about what it is they should be wearing. What's really hot right now? What looks great? What suits them? What's coming into style? What's going out of style? They're looking for cues on that. And the ability to copy helps create a trend that gives them something to latch onto. So it's a significant part of the industry. So trends are central to fashion and copying is central to trends. Now, what I just described is a way in which copying helps creativity thrive in the fashion industry. So rather than killing it in the way that we think of in, say, music or film, it keeps it going. But it's not true for every industry where we, where we see creativity and, and copying uh, coexisting. So let me give a different example. Uh, food. So if we think about cuisine, um, we can walk out of this uh, building and onto Wilshire. Maybe now they're gone, but often there are food trucks lined up just outside there, some of you know. Um, you can think of a great example that we talk about in the book, which is Kogi um, and the Kogi taco truck. Now what Kogi did, if you're not familiar with Kogi, Kogi is a, a roving set of taco trucks that have kind of Korean-style tacos. And they're a big hit, and they've spawned dozens of knockoff taco trucks with all kinds of names that sound a lot like Kogi, <laughs> but are not Kogi. So what the Kogi people did is they had a kind of creative epiphany. They said, I mean, there's a debate about exactly how this developed, but walking home one night in LA, this idea popped up. What if we took short ribs, galbi, and put it in a taco? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, and it turned out it was great. And they went ahead and they got a truck and they decided to do it that way. It took them a while to get going, but eventually they did. They really um, kind of struck a chord and suddenly they were everywhere. Now, what's interesting about the Kogi story, and of course the knockoffs followed very quickly. So what's interesting about that story is when they created that Korean taco, they really created something new that hadn't been around before, or at least hadn't been popularized before. And other trucks knocked that off because it was so successful. And the reason those other trucks could do that is the same reason that Forever 21 could knock off clothing. It's that food is not protected by copyright. So again, you could have a trademark. So Kogi has a trademark in its name. You can't put a Kogi name on your truck and go sit out on Wilshire. You can put bogey or dogey or something else like that, and believe me, they're pretty close to that. But you can't use the Kogi name. However, you can provide the exact same taco and uh, have the exact same ingredients. In fact, if you can find the recipe for Kogi, you can even copy the recipe exactly. So any recipe that you see in a cookbook, you can copy that. You can even put it into your own book if you want, because recipes can't be copyrighted. Why? It's the same reason I mentioned before. 
we think of food in our legal system as a functional thing. So food is functional in the same way that um, clothing is functional, and not like art that you can look at but can't consume or get any direct kind of value out of. So food and fashion have a very similar uh, relationship to the law. But what's interesting about both of them is that they're very creative industries. So if you think about the culinary world today, we live in a golden age for food. It's the most interesting time, I think, that there's ever been. There's more great food out there. It's extremely creative, and it's not just the Kogi uh, model, which is kind of take two great ideas and kind of jam them together like a Reese's peanut butter cup. It's something, you know, all, I mean, just within a short walk from where we are right now, there are some amazing restaurants doing very creative work. Red Medicine, just down the street. Many other examples. And they do all of that despite the fact that they know that they will be knocked off. And almost inevitably, their dishes will be copied by others. So if you, have you ever had a miso-glazed black cod? Have you ever had a chocolate cake with a molten center that you climb into and it kind of pours out? You can get that at Chili's now. Um, so, and you can find the recipe online for the Chili's one. These dishes are everywhere, but somebody invented those dishes. And then they migrated around. So again, the same question arose. Why is it that cooks are so creative when they know that they'll be knocked off? And if we think that the reason we have copyright law is to protect creators so that they have incentives to create, and we think that they won't have incentives to create if they're going to be copied because they know they'll be outcompeted by the copyists, then how is it that we have such a creative world of food? We also looked in the book at uh, some other very different industries. Football. We don't think of football as an industry necessarily, but it is pretty creative. So if you think about uh, formations and plays, there are all sorts of ways to array a bunch of men on a football field and figure out how to move a ball down the field. And they're constantly being created, and they're constantly being knocked off. Fonts. We don't think about fonts very much, unless you're getting married or having another event where you're trying to figure out what to put on the invitation, then you kind of focus on the font, or you're a writer. Um, but to be honest, when we wrote this book, um, we had no input on the font. You know, the press picks the font. But there are a lot of fonts. It turns out that there are maybe millions of fonts. And those fonts are being created all the time. And fonts can be freely copied. Financial innovations. Um, until a few years ago, you could not patent uh, a lot of the financial innovations that have driven Wall Street over the last 30 years. Now, some of those uh, innovations have arguably driven it over a cliff. But they've been created without any protection against copying. Um, and yet they continue to be produced. Databases. So some of us use databases. If we're lawyers, if we're doctors, if we're other forms of professionals, we might use proprietary databases that you have to subscribe to. Those databases you pay for, but what's in the databases is not protected in the United States. It's protected in other countries, but it's not protected in the United States. And yet the U.S. industry, which is unprotected, has been much more successful and growing faster than the European industry, which has copyright protection in its database. So all of these examples share this feature of being creative in different ways, admittedly, um, yet uh, they're all unprotected against copying. So let me break out a little bit about why and come back to food for a second. So if we think about food, um, food has trends a little bit like fashion. 
So there's some similarities. Things come into style and they go out of style. So plates get small, menus start to tell you about the farmer or maybe the fisherman. So there are trends for sure.、Um, even dishes and ingredients, bacon in everything.、Um, there are many such examples. But that's not the key thing that's really driving,、um, that's driving creativity in, in the kitchen. What, if you talk to chefs, good chefs, what they tell you is that cooking and the creative form of cooking that they do requires an open environment where they share ideas and learn from one another and do it in a very open way. And they do this deliberately. So there's a tradition in fine restaurants of having apprentices who maybe come for a couple of months. And they work closely with the chef and then they go back to their restaurant. Now, sometimes they go back and they take dishes with them. And they don't always attribute those dishes. And that attribution is very important because among chefs, there's a sense of、uh, rules, sort of informal rules or norms about what you're allowed to do. And those rules usually say it's fine to copy a dish as long as you attribute it to your master, to the person who taught it to you. Or if you copy someone's dish, if you tweak it enough, make it sufficiently your own, then it's okay also. And there's different, you know, none of these rules are necessarily written down, but there's a fascinating study that was done in Paris of、uh, only Michelin starred restaurants and their chefs. And those chefs had a pretty shared understanding of what was permitted. And it basically went in the way that I just described. You have to attribute, you have to be open about it, you can't call it your own, and you have to share that. Um, whatever glory you get from your cooking, you share with the person who gave you the recipe and vice versa. So, as long as you abide by those rules, it's an open environment. And those chefs believe that that makes for a much more fertile en- environment for creativity. And if you think about that model, it sounds a little bit like a very different area that we also talk about in this book, which is open source software. So, some of you are probably familiar with open source software because、uh, we hear about it a lot. We may not. Consume it directly.、Um, but if you use Firefox as your browser, you're using an open source、uh, form of software. And there are many, many others that you use that you may not even be aware of. In open source, it's the same kind of idea.、Uh, the code is open and can be changed and manipulated、um, as long as you don't then try to copyright it and keep it as your own. I'm glossing over many details. But what's important about both of these areas, food and open source software, which you think would have nothing to do with one another, is that they both rest on this notion that if you're open and you can see what others can do and you're allowed to refine an existing innovation, make it a little bit better, and then the next person makes it a little bit better, that that's actually a, a more efficient and effective way to innovate than the way that's embedded in our legal system, which is I own it and you can't copy it unless I license it to you. That's what the patent system tells you. That's what the copyright system tells you. It says, I have a monopoly on it. So, for example, Apple and its rounded, cornered, rectangular phone. Apple says, We own that shape. If you, Samsung or Nokia or LG, you want to use that shape, you have to license it from us. That's a very different model than a model that says, Hey, let's just create shapes. And people will tweak them and refine them and improve them. And over time, we'll get not only better shaped phones, I mean, there's a limit to what phones can look like, but we'll get also a competitive marketplace with a lot of different offerings out there. This is very true for the fashion industry. So if you think about what the effect of the knockoff world of fashion is, it's not only what I talked about a few minutes ago, which is driving that fashion cycle faster and forcing innovation to happen, it's also 
that consumers can buy things that they couldn't otherwise buy. So if you're someone of modest means or even well off, you can't afford most of the things that are going down the runways in New York this week. None of us can. They're very expensive. But we probably can afford the Forever 21 version. And we can probably afford the Fabiana version and lots of other knockoffs that will come out. So the ability to copy has a democratizing effect as well. It, it creates a set of versions in the marketplace. They might not be the same in the sense that one is made of a better quality fabric and maybe the stitching is done by hand instead of being glued by a machine. But they're very similar. So they give options in the marketplace and they force competition. And competition is essential to the way our economy operates. So um, I want to underscore that point about competition. So I started off talking about how we have a system of rules that govern creativity and protect it. And we have some areas like food and fashion and so forth that fall outside of that. And those are interesting to compare, and that's really what this book is mostly about. But behind all of that is this issue of competition. So if you think about a restaurant that opens, let's say a restaurant that opens in a deserted part of town, maybe in the far side of downtown, where no, nothing else is really nearby. Sorry? Church and state. Good example. Now there's more around it. But sometimes you open a place like that and there's really nothing there. You're the first, you're the pioneer. Then, after a few months of success, somebody opens down the street. And they're kind of similar to you. They have a different name, but they look like you. And that's perfectly legal. And in fact, if a third restaurant opened, that would be perfectly legal, and so on. In fact, we usually think of that as a good thing. We think, well, hey, there's competition now. There's a series of restaurants, and they're competing. And hopefully, not only will that give us better food and drink, it'll also give us cheaper food and drink, because they'll compete on price and on style and on ambiance, and they'll diversify themselves in different ways. But they'll give us a, a way to choose. And that is how a free market works. So competition is a central part of this whole story. And I'm underscoring that because if you think about how we typically treat copying, we say, we don't allow copying because copying would, the copy would outcompete the original. And so we think that um, the granting of a monopoly through a patent or a copyright is better than that form of competition. So it's fundamentally at odds with the way that we normally run our, uh, our creative system. So whether it's food or fashion, football fonts, any of these other areas, they don't all have an F in them, that I've talked about uh, tonight and that are all in the book, these are all areas that, that show and highlight the importance of competition and show that competition is not at odds with creativity. And imitation is not at odds with innovation. These things can run together. And in those situations, our legal system is best to stay out. Uh, there's no, I mean, I'm a lawyer. It would be good for me, honestly, if fashion suddenly was covered by copyright law. As it is, I sometimes get uh, consulting work things on the margin of that, I'd probably get a lot more of that. Um, it's good for most lawyers. Would that be good for consumers? Usually if something's good for a lawyer, it's not good for consumers. <laughs> I don't know how many other lawyers are here who would disagree with that, but that's the way it is. So our legal system is best off staying out of these situations. That's one of the points that we make. Um, 
But I want to close. Uh, I'm not sure where we are in time because I forgot to keep track, but we're good, right? Okay, good. I want to close with a couple of other things, and then we'll go to questions because I think that's the most interesting. Um, what about areas of creative life that are covered by copyright? Are there any lessons that we have uh, for that? I, there are. So I'm going to pick one, which is music, which is how we close the book. So if you think about the music industry, the music, particularly here in LA, the music industry is usually thought of as record companies, big record companies. And they're a kind of poster child for the problems of uh, illegal copying, and specifically of illegal downloading. So if you look at statistics from the Recording Industry uh, Association of America, they'll show you that um, you know, CD sales have dropped precipitously, that their revenues are maybe half or less than half of what they were 10, 20 years ago, and that they're hemorrhaging money and they're in terrible shape. And this is all because of copying. And it all started to happen when Napster was created. And then after Napster, there was Grokster and a series of other software programs that allowed people to share music. And once they're sharing music, then they're illegally downloading because you're not allowed to do that. Remember that Netflix FBI warning. It's the same thing for music. So if you burn a CD for a friend and give it to them, you've broken the law. But we all do it um, to one degree or another. Um, some of us do it a lot. Some of us just do it informally like that. Um, but most people do without even realizing it. They're breaking the law constantly. But so the music industry has really suffered. Um, or has it? So I think if you look at the music industry, or if you think about music a little more closely, you can see that copying is not as dangerous or as negative a phenomenon for music as the music industry uh, rhetoric would lead you to believe. Um, and there's also some interesting lessons. So a couple of examples. So one, I mentioned earlier that um, we live in a golden age for food. Um, more choices, better choices than ever before. So from a consumer point of view, I think you can say the same about music. You can buy more music, more varied music today than you ever could 20 years ago, no matter what record store you live near. So the biggest tower records in the world didn't have a tenth of what you can find on iTunes or Amazon today. In terms of quality, well, that's a subjective judgment, but I think it's fair to say that music is as good or better than it was 10 or 20 years ago because we're exposed to so much more and there's so much fertile interchange going on. So from a consumer point of view, things are better. Now, what about on the producer side? Are things really worse? Well, again, the music labels are doing terribly, um, but are musicians doing terribly? Well, it depends. It depends on who, what musicians you ask. So the same technologies that enabled copying in the music industry also, in other words, computers and the internet, also enable some kid in their bedroom down the street to create an entire album on their computer, to then distribute it to the world, maybe via a MySpace page or something else, and to eventually um, go around and create an uh, entire career built around that music without ever leaving their room. Now, that wasn't possible 20 years ago. You had to go to a studio, maybe up on Sunset. It cost you a lot of money. You had to have a record company contract. It was all very expensive, and it was all controlled through those intermediaries. So the music industry has been radically changed by this. So on the one hand, yes, the record labels are in bad shape. On the other hand, there's a flourishing of music and a way of interacting between musicians and their fans that did not exist at all. And those both flow from the same disruptive technologies. 
So the music industry is totally different than food and fashion. But what it does illustrate is that copying is not always uh, the negative force that people take it out to be. Yes, it can change the way a business works. But the ability to copy can also lead to all kinds of different changes that are very positive. So there is an upside to it that is often not appreciated, even in a field like music. Now, I don't want to overstate that, because there are some serious problems. And, and for Hollywood, this is something that's really coming on right now. So um, I know friends of mine who are involved um, in the Academy and in other um, studios around town, they're very worried about the fact that copying is increasingly easy. Um, and it's happening more and more. But on the other hand, they worried, and this is what I'll end with, uh, they worried deeply in the 1980s about a fearsome copying technology that had just come along. And in fact, um, their lead um, lobbyist, a man named Jack Valenti, likened it to a rapist and to the Boston Strangler. And that fearsome technology was the VCR. The VCR, he, he said, uh, in a hearing that was held at UCLA, in the UCLA Law School, uh, where I teach, uh, in a congressional hearing that was specially held here, organized by the movie studios um, and the Motion Picture Association of America, he said, this will destroy the industry, the ability to copy. Well, it ended up going before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, decided that the VCR was permissible. Now, that should have been the end of Hollywood, but instead something very different happened. It turned out that the industry made tons of money off of that VCR, and then later the DVD player and everything else that followed from it. So I only make that point to show that we don't always understand how copying and creativity work together. We often have a terrible sense of what's actually going to be threatening and what's actually going to be fruitful. And so for those reasons, we need to be cautious about how we think about this relationship and look at it in a more careful and nuanced way than I think we've tended to do. So those are all themes that we strike in the book. Um, I'm happy to talk about any of them or any of the examples, including some of the ones I haven't discussed. Um, with one, um, one major example being stand-up comedy. I didn't mention that, but that is one of our chapters. <laughs> so um, anyway, with that, I'm happy to go to questions. Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. Uh, I have a bumper sticker from about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, that I got from Lawrence Lessig that says, Free the Mouse. And it had to do with, I believe it was the Sonny Bono Act. Mm -hmm. Now, Disney went to extreme lengths to extend the copyright protection of Steamboat Willie I think 25 years. Do you think that kind of end run by corporations to manipulate the system to extend copyright protection for those type of creative elements is a good thing or a bad thing in terms of creativity in entertainment and the broader marketplace? Larry Lessig is a very smart guy. In fact, he's even endorsed our book, so I'm going to really uh, <laughs> bow down in his direction. Um, I think it's a bad thing uh, for a number of reasons. I, I think, look, I, I emphasize tonight the, the ways in which copying can be beneficial and the ways in which there are industries like fashion that really challenge our assumptions about how copyright is supposed to work. But that's not to say I'm anti-copyright. I think we need copyright laws, but we need appropriately balanced laws. And when you look at something like the Sonny Bono Act, so the Sonny Bono Act named after Congressman Sonny Bono, extended copyright protection and is often viewed as something that was done at the behest of Disney in particular because Mickey Mouse was going to go uh, out of copyright protection and into the public domain. 
So now we have a copyright standard that's well over a century. And I think that doesn't make any sense. So even if you accept the idea that you really need incentives to create, that that's an essential element, that you need incentives to create that are protected by copyright, it's hard to understand why you need that much time and what an extension would possibly do because the thing has already been created. So extending the time that's protected doesn't make it come to life. It already was alive. It already was there. So that seems like just kind of a naked grab of power and, um, and money by a big corporation. Now, I understand why they do it, and if I were uh, the CEO, I would try to do the same thing because that would be my duty to do so. But I don't think it's good public policy. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Zach, and uh, uh, I actually worked in the Berkel Center just down the hall uh, from you. Um, and I'm a PhD student at UCLA in education. And I was just interested uh, if you have any ideas about kind of copying lesson plans uh, with uh, online education. I know, uh, especially at for-profit universities, it's kind of uh, a big deal and it's contested, if you could speak to that. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting area. I, I actually confess I should know more about that, and it's good to see you um, also. I should know more about that. This is a big issue on campus, any campus, um, but it also goes to something that probably affects a lot of us in the room, regardless of what our job is, which is what is our intellectual property protection and things we create in our workplace setting. It's complicated for uh, professors because we have this kind of odd relationship at the university. We're employees, but we also are owners. So, you know, we're supposedly, we run the university in some sense. There are regents, but, you know, we have faculty governance within the UC system. So we're not employees in the usual sense. And we're also creators. So, you know, I wrote this book, and I have the copyright on this book. UCLA doesn't. But at the same time, I did it as a UCLA faculty member. So there's a bunch of complicated questions embedded in this, and it has never really been thought through, mostly because it didn't have to be. But now online education, uh, and particularly the ability, again, of digital technologies to disrupt a traditional industry is forcing these questions to the fore. So this is a long-winded way of saying, I don't really know, and I, frankly, I don't think anyone really knows right now. I do know that UCLA itself, and I think every good university, is grappling with this question and trying to figure out what is the proper scope particularly as these, uh, these for-profit companies start to um, use faculty in their classes, like Coursera and some of the other ones that have been created, um, who really owns that um, is going to be more contested. I don't think there's a straight answer. It's an excellent question. Hi, my name is Dawn Hope Stevens, and I actually have a photo business. So I was interested in like, the work of Robert Heineken, who taught photography at UCLA, and he incorporated um, magazines and other people's photographs. So what's the story with that? Thank you. I can think of many other examples that are similar. So you might be familiar with Shepard Ferry and the Obama Hope poster. Um, uh, just an interesting aside about Shepard Ferry. I met him recently, and he uh, also has a clothing line. So he's a fashion designer. He doesn't like being knocked off, it turns out. He complained <laughs> about it. Um, so um, there's also an artist named uh, Richard Prince that is currently in... in uh, embroiled in a lawsuit over artworks that he has created that use photographs from another photographer, and he then draws pictures on them. And so there are many such examples, and they all go to the same issue, which is really kind of two issues, I guess. One is, what is a derivative work, which is a legal term that we use, but basically, what's a work that's um, derived from an existing work um, or versus one that's original on its own? 
And what's fair use? So fair use is a central concept in copyright law, and as its name implies, it's when a use is considered fair. So if I um, quote, let's say, your question in another book and put it in here, I can do that. That's perfectly fine. I can even um, quote your book in my book. As long as I footnote it, that's good, you know, sort of academic practice. But that's considered fair use. Photographs probably are fair use also, but if you buy this book, you'll notice that there are not that many photographs. And the reason is, usually, you need to get a license. So the same thing goes for a photograph that incorporates somebody else's artwork. You probably need to license that. Now, most, uh, I think most lawyers would say, probably that counts as fair use, but you might have to fight it. And if you have to fight it, you're probably not going to do it. So there's a big chilling effect that occurs. So just to bring this back to the points I made earlier, the concern over copyright litigation forces a lot of behavior that I think is bad in the creative world. So people shy away from using other artworks as background factors or um, in a film or in a documentary. It's a big issue for documentarians. Every time they pan around and there's some art where they have to worry about, are they getting a license for that? Can they get that cleared? So there's a clearance culture that develops that is probably familiar to some of you in this room. And it's very costly to do it. Lawyers are expensive, and you've got to spend time on it, and usually the best answer is just don't do it. Cut that scene, get rid of that thing, black it out somehow, don't use the artwork, don't use the magazine. Um, and I think that's unfortunate, because it means we don't get the same kind of rich creativity we could otherwise. Hi, uh, I'm Bob Decker. I'm a, pro a former professor of medicine at Northwestern University, and I want to get back to the question regarding education, because the copyright laws have made it very, very difficult to teach graduate students science, no matter what kind of science it is, because it's now illegal to copy manuscript articles, even your own, to use in a classroom. And, and, and this ends up being a very, very non-innovative thing to do. You can't get students to read what you want them to read because they have to go through a number of loops to even get at the document they want. And right. I wonder how you view that kind of issue. Uh, I, I'm sure you have to do with it, deal with your law students in just the same way. It's a little bit like the Sonny Bono term extension, where we've taken what's a, what's a pretty good idea, which is let's have something called copyright and let's protect creations. And we've sort of blown it out of proportion uh, and taken it to extremes, because there's money to be made in that. Right, so in those examples, those scientific journals that you're talking about, those are expensive journals. And uh, you know that uh, very well. And they, um, they are making money. And so uh, when there's money to be made, people who hold a property right will push that property right as far as they can. And unfortunately, in intellectual property, there's rarely another side. So, so when people go to Congress, so when Disney um, pushed through the Sonny Bono Act, for example, there's usually nobody on the other side to say, or nobody powerful, to say, hey, that's a really bad idea. You know why? Because I won't be able to teach my students. Or you know why? I won't be able to, to take Mickey Mouse and drive him into some other character, some new character, like Disney did with Steamboat Willie when they created Mickey Mouse, and create something new that we haven't even heard of. So that voice is not generally heard, and that's unfortunate. Um, the one counterexample I would give to this trend is, um, the debate that occurred about a year ago or nine months ago over um, SOPA and PIPA. These are two laws, some of you may be familiar with them, um, that were introduced in the House and Senate to basically ratchet up intellectual property protection online. And they were really pushed hard by this town. 
Um, and they were fought against by Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley won. And so that was really one of the first times that there was a major uh, effort, major push to strengthen IP laws, intellectual property laws, that was fought and successfully won. Usually it's the other way around. So that kind of behavior is really unfortunate. It has terrible effects, but it's very hard to stop. Unless you rally your students and get them to march on Washington, and you know, that's not going to happen. So. Hi, my name is Albert Lee. And you've given a lot of really good examples where, where copyright litigation can kind of muck up creativity. But it seems like we're at an impasse because a big corporation, a big company like Apple can throw millions and millions of dollars towards that litigation. So what's a possible path towards more creative freedom when me as a consumer, I don't have the, I don't have the wherewithal, to, I don't have the ability to hire a huge lawyer who's going to help fight for creative freedom. And, yes. And it seems like, and seems like, for example, from speaking personally, I have a friend who's a jewelry designer who's having her designs being ripped off, and there's other designers with more lawyers, more more budget, more legal budgets to draw it out. So it's it's it becomes a difficult thing. So it seems like people with the money, people with more money, have are are become the juggernauts in this in this situation. I mean, it's absolutely the case that. In this country, our legal system is driven by what happens typically in Congress. In most of these cases, we're dealing with something that Congress has control over. So all of our copyrights, patents, there is a constitutional provision that gives Congress the power to create them, but ultimately Congress does it. Congress decides, and Congress, unfortunately, is really driven by money. So you know, you're, you're right that it's uh, not easy to fix. Now, what could you do about that? So for example, let's take the Apple patent. That's the easiest one to think about. Um, you know, should Apple have a patent over the rectangular shape of the iPad? I think that's ridiculous. Um, I think most people would probably say that's ridiculous. How could, they, how could they have a patent over a shape that, by the way, is the same shape? Here's a piece of paper, here's a book. This is how we consume content. You know, when Moses brought the tablets down, they were kind of shaped like this. So I don't know what other shape there could be for something like an iPad, right? There was, I think on The Office, they showed a triangle-shaped <laughs> iPad. Didn't catch on. But what can you do about that? Um, you know, I think in, the, in that immediate instance, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing we can do about it. But what, you know, the only thing we can do, really, is either support or push for more sensible uh, intellectual property legislation in Congress. And there are groups that do that. So, um, you know, there's a whole set of organizations involved in that. But it's a very difficult battle, so there's no easy answer. Your book is now up on Pirate Bay. It is, Good. Good. It is being illegally knocked off and, and pirated on Pirate Bay via BitTorrent. We're proud of that. Exactly. <laughs> Somewhere the skylight guy is yanking his hair out right now. Um, now, my question was, I've, I've done a lot of work uh, internationally uh, in and around, actually, uh, copyright, internet, um, intellectual property and theft like that. In Mexico, before the movies, in fr instead of the FBI warning, they have a screen there that says, piracy feeds families. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Don't buy your movies from Hollywood, buy them from us. <laughs> exactly. Now, what, what, I it, heard of that. what it is, is I'm, what I'm seeing is the rise of what I would call a digital concierge. It's that you have a neighborhood pirate. It's a person who comes to you and says, I notice you've been watching a lot of uh, interesting movies lately. Have you checked out the works of Truffaut? And then this entire week, they come to you with like pirated versions of these movies, and they're actually expanding 
hmm. the uh, the amount of, of and and the diversity of content that people are being exposed to, because you know when your your salary is only a couple hundred dollars a month, you're not going to spend twenty nine ninety five on a DVD. But obviously, the flip side of that is you do see that there is an effect here. Is there? Everybody keeps on talking about a business model in digital that is going to sustain intellectual property. Have you seen that beast anywhere? Yeah, that's a really, I, I wasn't aware of that example. It's, it's a problem. I think, let me go back to music for a second on that. I think one of the examples in music is, um, so we have a quote in the book from Mick Jagger where he said, uh, you know, there was about 15 years in the music industry where you made money from records, from like 1975 to 1990 or something, where you made big money. Um, and that's over. And that's over now. The way you make money, and certainly the way he makes money, is by touring, is through live performance. So I think one way to think about, and this applies just as much to my book being on Pirate Bay. So I actually personally think it's good that it's on Pirate Bay. And the reason I think it's good is I think copies are often fantastic advertisements. So that's a sign of the value. And um, you know you could download it and stuff, but some people want this version. Some people want it on their Kindle in an uncorrupted way. As long as you price things well, and iTunes illustrates this beautifully, um, if you price things well, people will go with the legal version. So there's been over 10 billion downloads on iTunes. Why? Because you go to iTunes, incredibly easy. It tells you everything you want. It finds it, and the song costs 99 cents. So yes, there are plenty of people who go, still go to the Pirate Bay, um, as you, it sounds like you're pretty familiar with finding it. Um, so uh, you can still do that. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have a legal alternative that's cheap, it'll work. So I think there's two lessons. One is if you make it cheap enough, I mean, this is kind of the lesson that's in Chris Anderson's book, Free, which I recommend. It's good. He goes through some of this. But the other is the performance versus the product. So you convert whatever it is into a performance rather than a product. And in a lot of ways, a lot of the industries that we talked about exhibit that phenomenon. And I'll, I'll end with this. So, so food is a wonderful example. So yes, you can, you can copy the recipe from Thomas Keller uh, for his oysters and pearls, but you're probably not going to be able to make it. And in fact, or make it in any way that's good. And in fact, almost no one can probably do that. And even if you could recreate that exact dish in the exact way, it's not the same thing as going to the French Laundry and having that whole experience, which will be incredibly memorable. So live performance is a big part of, and it doesn't have to be live, the Arclight. So this is the other end of the spectrum. You can have cheap and easy downloads, or you go to the Arclight. Why is the Arclight a successful industry? And we, we talk about it in, in the book, partly because there may be other examples in the US, but it's the one we know. You go to the Arclight, and it's pretty full most of the time, even though it's really expensive for a movie theater. Why? Because you get your guaranteed seat, you can have a drink, there's food, they make the seats really nice. They do the whole thing, so then it feels special. So again, it becomes a performance. You can download the movie, or you could spend $18, $17 on an Arclight ticket. But the Arclight is a performance, and watching it on your computer is not. So I think there are ways to do it. Thank you, Bill. <laughs>